0: Uh, Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the city, the thinking person's alternative to doing macrame and decoupage. I don't know why, that's just how we've come to be known over the years. Uh, Thinking person's alternative to doing macrame and decoupage, either or. Uh, If you know about macrame and decoupage, you're just about the kind of demographic age group that we're looking for. If you don't know what that is, what can I tell you? You're a punk. Uh, um, welcome. My name uh, is Eric Metaxas. It's my pleasure to see so very many of you here this evening, almost as many of you as there are seats. Have I mentioned that there are seats in this uh, area here? If people are just coming in uh, for the first time, there are seats here, and if they're not, there's still seats here. Um, I I just have to say that I'm I'm genuinely amazed uh, to see uh, New Yorkers, like yourselves, if not yourselves, uh, come to a beautiful club to have a glass of of wine, hear a brilliant speaker. It just amazes me. It just doesn't add up, really. It doesn't make sense. I don't know why you're here. Um, But I want to welcome you. Um, For those of you who've had a glass of wine, it should be taking effect right about now. You should begin. (laughs) To feel sleepy, eyelids growing heavy, heavy. The room is warm. You just, you just want to close them, don't you? Just, just want to close them, but don't, because it's offensive to the speaker. Don't do that, okay? But you can do that later. Um, well, tonight at Socrates in the City, are privileged to hear from Bishop N. T. Wright, as I think you may have heard. Um, yes, once again, we at Socrates in the City deliver to you a speaker with a British accent. Yes. <laughs> Um, yes, absolutely. And these are authentic accents, every single one of them. Not a phony one that we've detected yet. But the thing is our focus groups have told us that uh, you prefer five to one, you prefer uh, speakers with a British accent. We try to try to bring you what, uh, what you ask for. The focus groups also tell us that any kind of a, of a title is a plus uh, for you guys. Tonight we found somebody with a title and a British accent, you know. Um, and and if, you don't, uh, if you end up not really caring for what the good bishop has to say, uh, you take it up with the focus groups. I don't want to hear about it, okay? Because we just uh, we just gave you what you you said you wanted in the surveys. Is that clear? Fine, fine. Don't take it up with me. Um, look, we, we kid around, but Americans were undeniably fascinated with things British. Uh, part of that is just because of the riches of British history we don't uh, have that here. We don't have as much history. Uh, we can I'd say Americans really we trace our history no farther back, usually speaking than probably like 1976 when Bruce Jenner, you know, remember uh, you know, when he won the, uh, got the gold medal in the, the decathlon, the Olympics, that's about as far as we go uh, with our history. Before that, it's all very hazy, We know, very little Vikings, dinosaurs, we don't know, it's, it's a haze. It's a haze before Jenner uh, took the gold. Um, but in Britain they have such a rich history and we value that. We're, so we're impressed uh, by Britain and of course by British accented speakers. Um, We've had Oz Guinness, of course, uh, Jonathan Aiken, and David Aikman, um, but but to be fair, we can also be a little intimidated uh, as well by by uh, by the Brits, as I like to call them. Um, we can be intimidated sometimes. They just uh, they just beyond our comfort zone. You know, who can forget a couple of months ago, Baroness Cox showed up in that in that uh, magnificent uh, embroidered silk gown. You remember the Baroness? Uh, yeah, yeah, with the wimple um, and that preposterous starched ruff. Remember that huge starched ruff? It was absurd. And, and um, uh, Americans aren't used to that. We're much more into jogging suits and comfortable stuff like that. Uh, uh, same thing with the, you. Remember John Paulkinghorn um, showed up in that uh, the full suit of armor. You, you guys, some of you guys were here for that, uh, putting putting his 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 beaver up only to speak, uh, and to to glower us in that titled British way, you know, that, uh, that I find just so, so un-American and communist. Um, uh, so, you know, that side of British culture we can do without. Thank you very much. Uh, so, so you know, to be perfectly honest, uh, inviting British speakers is um, it's really something of a crapshoot, isn't it? You don't know what you're going to get. You just don't know what you're going to get. And, and I have to say that uh, I think we're probably all a bit relieved that the bishop hasn't come in here with his, you know, with his miter. Uh... And Crozier, you know and the whole that whole thing, um, so uh, thank you uh, in advance uh, for not wearing that stuff. I, I, I always hate to bring that kind of thing up with the speakers in, in advance, you know, but i 've been stung twice before, as I just mentioned, and I think I just did something I need to mention because it makes us uncomfortable. Um, yeah, right. Um, so tonight, of course, we're going to hear from, uh, from Bishop N.T. Wright, who's speaking on the subject of his latest book, Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense. There are copies here. There are more copies. I hope some of you already bought copies. As soon as the Q&A is over, quickly um, come over uh, to this table if you'd like uh, your book signed, and it's uh, going to be a little bit of a zoo, because that's just the way the bishop is. He's, uh, but um, but uh, please uh, try, to, try to keep it efficient, and don't bend his ear or talk at all. please. Um, now, in case you didn't know it, uh, our speaker, uh, N.T. Wright, is the Bishop of Durham. Now, strangely enough, I'm not making this up. This is true. This morning at 7 a.m. at something called the New Canaan Society, which is a, a, a UFO cult that I'm uh, a part of, <laughs> up in uh, up in Connecticut. This is I'm not making this up. This morning at 7 a.m. at the New Canaan Society, I introduced. A speaker whose last name was and still is Wright, same spelling, Wright. Uh, Who's a pastor? Guess where? Durham, North Carolina. Isn't that creepy? What is God saying? It's freaking me out. It's just, uh, it's freaking me out. So, so, but that's true. Wright from Durham, pastor. So, 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 Bishop Wright, uh, you are the second pastoral figure named Wright from Durham. I've introduced today and that's really just about enough. Two's my limit, uh, you know, doctor's orders. I can't, uh, if there's a third, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to pass you on to somebody else tonight. Um, but uh, anyway, the, the, the Wright that I introduced this morning, Alan Wright, had a North Carolina accent um, and just as the silliest thing uh, you, Bishop Wright, might say will sound brilliant because of your British accent, everything brilliant he said still sounded like he was just a pickin' and a grinin'. Um, it's, uh, it's odd how that is, but it's not fair. But there, there it is. That's just the way it is. Uh, that's just the way it is. So you get to benefit uh, from that. Um, well, now the book we're gonna hear about tonight, Simply Christian, is not entirely unlike a book uh, I have written, titled Everything you Always Wants to Know About God, But We're Afraid to Ask. Not that my book is anything uh, like the Bishop's extraordinary w- uh, work, but I, I believe with the, you know, with the right marketing and distribution, we can give you a run for your money, I do, I do. Um, but, um, yes, good evening. Uh, I wanted to say that uh, I have just, um, just to plug my second book for the evening, uh, I've just been working on a biography of William Wilberforce, about whom you will all hear uh, very much, 18th century uh, abolitionist. And when we uh, realized that we would have the privilege of hearing from uh, Bishop Wright this evening, and the, 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 the term Bishop of Durham came up. I said, this, this rings a bell, Bishop of Durham. Now, I don't know enough about England to know exactly where uh, Durham is. Um, I thought it was a kind of wheat, uh, but, but I thought Bishop of Durham. So I, I, I searched through my, my manuscript, which is now being uh, copy-edited, and I found, in fact, that I, I had a little thing in there about the Bishop of Durham circa 1795, um, and... Um, since nobody really will dare uh, stop me, I'm gonna I'm gonna read from the from my own manuscript. <laughs> what are you gonna do? You're stuck. Tough. Um, but the scene is interesting. In 1795, abolition things were not looking good for abolition. Uh, Wilberforce was really and truly struggling. It was it was the it was just the dark night of the soul where things are looking bad and. Uh, people were starting to, to leave the movement, you know, the movement had been, had been going for about a decade and, and it was really, really tough at that point, people beginning to peel off. And uh, in, in my manuscript, I talk about uh, someone named James Stephen, who is an extraordinary member of the Clapham group, the group of people that were around Wilberforce at that time, uh, came to join the fold from the West Indies, sort of to, to buck up the recruits and say, I'm with you. And he brought with him to London his family in 1795 and three West Indian turtles. That's, you know, before you had to declare that kind of stuff to customs officials, right? And um, he decided to give them, James Stevens, to William Wilberforce as a present, these three West Indian turtles. Uh, now, Wilberforce, uh, in a couple of years, would be married, have children, and a menagerie of, of animals, but at this point, he's still single, and he, couldn't, he could barely feed himself. I mean, he had a problem, much less take care of uh, three turtles from another hemisphere. Um, And so I'm quoting from my book here. So Wilberforce gave the three West Indian turtles to his friend, the Bishop of Durham. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? You should buy the book. (sighs) Thank you, thank you. And the Bishop of Durham, in turn, gave them to his cook. The cook, in his turn, gave them to several waiters who gave them to the bishop's guests at a banquet for 55 people who all enjoyed them thoroughly and who were all, the bishop-informed, Wilberforce in his thank-you note, supporters of abolition. Isn't that sweet? Yeah. It's kind of sick. And so I just, before we let you speak here, bishop, I just want to say if anybody gives you a pet, you really mustn't cook it. You just mustn't do that. It's just not, it's not to be done. Uh, but that's what your forebear did. See a forebear? Can we describe him that way? Um, anyway, to be serious for a final paragraph, Bishop Wright is one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, and we are thrilled to have him with us today. He was the dean of Litchfield Cathedral and the canon theologian of Westminster Abbey. Some of us have heard of that. I believe it's in London. Yeah? And he is currently, as we've said, the Bishop of Durham. He's taught at Cambridge, McGill, and Oxford Universities and has written over 30 books. He's also appeared on numerous television programs, uh, including uh, ABC News, Dateline, and American Bandstand. Uh, might be a typo, I don't know. Uh As usual, our speaker will speak for 35 or 40 minutes on the topic, uh, after which we will have uh, about the same length of time for questions and answers. There should be microphones set up. Do make your way to the microphone uh, for Q&A at that point. But without further ado, my privilege to introduce Bishop N.T. Wright. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, I don't think I've ever had an introduction quite like that before, and I may never get one like that again but it it, it did remind me all this stuff about Britishness. Um, My friend and former colleague, Professor John Bowker who is a leading English theologian who used to trot across to America frequently for conferences, told me that one time he looked in his diary and discovered that there was a conference and he was giving a paper at it and he had to get on a plane right now and he hadn't actually thought about what to say so he looked on the plane to see what he was talking about and it said uh, God in the 21st century or something like that and so he penned something very quickly got to the conference, whisked straight up onto the platform, he's speaking, he does his 50-minute lecture and concludes uh, about God that if the doctrine of the Trinity didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent it. And there was thunderous, thunderous applause. And as he sat down, the person next to him said, uh, very daring, very daring. And he said, well, daring? I thought that was rather orthodox. The man said, well, this is a Unitarian conference. <laughs> and he said, so why are they all applauding? He said, well, they just love your accent. So... <laughs> So, I say what I, what I lack in clarity, I may make up in, in clarity of, of thought, I may make up in clarity of British speech. But I have to say, uh, I, I, now that I am to my horror this last three years, a member of the House of Lords. You didn't sufficiently rub that in, actually, Eric. Can we just just flag that up? Um, I, w- I was reminded of the splendid moment a few years ago, well, some years ago now, when Lord Hailsham was Lord Chancellor of England. And uh, the Lord Chancellor wears some very fine robes and the whole legal kit and so on. And he came out of his own room in the House of Lords. And often you have parties of visitors and tourists who are being shown round the corridors of the Houses of Parliament. And uh, Hailsham came face-to-face with a party of American tourists. And uh, at the same time, um, a door opened further down the corridor, and a member of parliament, a man called Neil Martin, who was MP for Buckingham at the time, uh, Neil Martin emerged from the the door maybe 30 yards down the corridor. And Hailsham wanted to attract Neil Martin's attention, so he ignored the tourists who were facing him. And he raised his hand, and he called, Neil! (laughs) And the tourists, of course, all did. (laughs) So these are the pitfalls that that an Englishman has when when addressing American audiences. And uh, the, the... the possibilities for misunderstanding within our common language or not so common language are legion and well-known and written about elsewhere. And uh, they even come in that I've got in my hands the American edition of this book, Simply Christian, and the British edition. And they're written by two different people. This one's written by N.T. Wright, and this one's written by Tom Wright. Because um, in in England, my publishers think if it's designed to be a user-friendly book, as opposed to one of those academic tomes, they prefer me to be Tom. But in America, uh, the publishers apparently want me to look a bit more serious, so they give me my full initials, N.T. Wright, so, but it is the same book, um, and uh, I, think I, I think I prefer the American cover, actually, but there it is. Um, you never quite know when you're publishing. We, we live in a very confused world, and I've just been lecturing in another place a little way north of here. Um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Harvard University, in fact, and I've been talking about some of the confusions that are out there in our culture right now, and I'm, I'm reminded of some of a splendid. Um, op-ed piece which our chief rabbi in the UK did recently in the London Times. Jonathan Sachs, our chief rabbi, is one of the most articulate and elegant uh, expositors of basically faith and life in the UK today along with our Archbishop Rowan Williams. And Jonathan Sachs did this splendid piece where he talked about the children of Israel walking through the wilderness with God trying to guide them. And he used as his um, model for how this was working, what happens when you have a GPS system in your car or as we call them a satellite navigation system in your car and uh, he said and I wouldn't have had the temerity to say it but this is how he put it he said that whoever invented this GPS with a woman's voice telling you that in 200 yards you must turn right he said didn't do so with the average Jewish male in mind he said because said everybody knows that when this voice says in 200 yards turn left he said the answer is who do you think I am I'm not going to do that I'm going to turn right at the next one so, so, so he said but then When you do that, there's a sort of pause, and then after a while the voice says, in effect, well, this wasn't what we had in mind, but since we're now here, you probably want now to do this and this and this. And he said, that's what it was like with the children of Israel. They had God in the midst saying, do this, do this, and then they, no, we're going to do that and that, and and so God hangs in there, goes along with them. And he said, is that a model of our culture? Is that what we're like in Western civilization today? Is there still a divine voice in our midst saying, do this, do this, do this? And are we paying any attention? And he said, the trouble is you can't absolutely guarantee that that's the situation. He said, because there's another model. It's a brilliant little article. He said, there's another model which sadly might be the one which is really obtaining right now. Apparently, there is a certain type of ant which, when it is lost... Is programmed to follow the ant in front. Now, that's normally a smart thing to do because somewhere out there there's a little furry creature who actually knows where we're supposed to be going, so you'll get there, but he said sometimes what happens is that you have an entire colony of ants going round and round in an enormous circle, each following the one in front, and they all die of starvation because they don't know how to get out of that circle. And so Jonathan Sachs's article ended with this rather sharp question, which are we more like? Are we like the children of Israel maybe getting it wrong, but maybe still just about listening for a voice? Or are we like those ants just merely following the ant in front, everybody hoping that if we follow where the fashion is going, intellectually, societally, whatever, culturally, then we'll all get somewhere, and in fact going round in circles. And it's partly with that kind of image in mind that I started this book. This book is in three sections. I'll hold up the American edition of the book so you can see. This book is in three sections. Still in three sections. I actually planned four and I got towards the end of the third and my writing time that I would allowed for it was just about up. And I phoned the publisher and I said, I've I've finished three sections and I actually want to do the fourth one uh, but I'm not sure when I'm going to do it. He said, if you've done three and it's already 200 pages, that's quite long enough and actually it looks like a book to me. So there are things, and you may well pick me up on them in the Q&A, which I did want to say in section four. Maybe it's going to be another book. But the first section is called Echoes of a Voice. Echoes of a Voice. And I'm not here talking explicitly about satellite navigation systems or about uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness. I'm talking about voices that I believe virtually all human beings in virtually all cultures listen for and know, but are puzzled by. And the first of these is a voice which tells us to do justice. You don't have to teach people that there is such a thing as justice. There is such a thing as fair. You go to a, a, a school playground with four-year-olds, preschool play, playground. And if you listen to what they say, and this is a point straight out of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, to which I happily doff my cap at this point. And sooner or later you'll hear one of these kids say, that's not fair. You don't have to teach. You know. Has the child been to a seminar on modern theories of justice? No, it hasn't. child just knows that there is such a thing as fairness, and you, this child who's beating him up or whatever, is not obedient to this thing called justice or fairness. But, you know, we do exactly the same as adults, and as nations and countries and societies. We all know there ought to be such a thing as putting things right, doing justice, getting it sorted out. We all find it extraordinarily difficult. When I lived in Westminster I lived within maybe uh, um, I was going to say a five iron shot, my golf isn't so good, maybe a three iron shot of um, four or five leading judicial establishments the Houses of Parliament, the Lord Chancellor's Office, uh, New Scotland Yard where all the police hang out and and one or two other places as well with just down the river enough barristers in the City of London to to man a battleship, although with all those barristers arguing the battleship would be going around in circles I think, but uh, And still we can't do justice. There's all these people, highly paid, working at it. And yet we know that justice slips through our fingers. We sometimes get it right, and we often get it wrong. And internationally, globally, you don't need me to tell you that the doing of justice internationally is a major problem right now. And each time we think, right, we now know what to do, and we go and try and do it, and as often as not we make matters worse. So there's this oddity, and I describe the call to justice as the echo of a voice, that we can sort of hear this voice somewhere saying, you know in your bones that things ought to be fair, ought to be sorted out, ought to be just. What are you doing about it? And we say, well, yes, I wish we could. But then, of course, there is an exception. In my own case, I'd rather like to be able to sneak around the back and avoid this, because it could be convenient. So there's a residual oddity in human experience. Whatever your religious and cultural background, and then the second echo of a voice that I've tracked here is spirituality. 30 or 40 years ago with secularism rampant, the very word spirituality was not a buzzword. When I grew up, people weren't talking about spirituality. They might talk about prayer, um, often in the sense of that's what I used to do when I was a kid but I don't do it anymore. But spirituality wasn't such a thing. And I use in the book the image of, it it was as though you'd had a country where there were lots of springs of water bubbling up all over everywhere and making everything muddy and messy. And sooner or later a dictator comes along and paves the whole thing over with concrete, and says, if you want water, we will pipe it to certain outlets, and that'll be safe. You can have it there. That was the world I grew up in, the world of secularism that had paved over the rich bubbling springs of spirituality. And it said, we have these outlets called churches, and if you want some spirituality, you can go there perhaps, but not many people did. But then what happens after a while is that the springs of water get too energetic, and they break open the concrete and spill out all over everywhere. And it's very confusing and people are so thirsty that they're drinking any water even if it's muddy and messy. That's the situation we now have. Since the demise of secularism in face of the New Age spiritualities, neopantheisms, all kinds of new religious movements. Go into the average bookstore and look at the mind, body, spirit section or whatever it's called there. And you'll find all kinds of weird and wacky and wonderful religions except not normally mainstream Christianity. Isn't that funny? People think they want spirituality but they're not going to find it in church. And sadly sometimes they're right. Shame on us churches that the quest for an authentic spirituality, the sense that there are more dimensions to life than what you can put in a test tube or in a bank balance, that sense haunts people in wide varieties of cultures. But again and again, they don't quite know what to do about it. Or they try to pray and it works one day and then the next day it doesn't seem to mean anything or whatever it is. So this too, I say, is like the echo of a voice. A voice saying, you ought to be listening to this. And we say, yes, I know, but I'm not quite sure what to do about it. And then the third echo of a voice is relationships. Basically, we all know we are made for one another, and we all mess it up. And we do that in terms of our most close-up intimate relations, familial, spousal Uh, And the colleagues we work with, we manage to get across them and manage to, to foul up relationships and we're not good at friendships. But we do it globally as well. We all know that it would be wonderful if we could all get along as a global society. And we work at it and we have highly paid diplomats trained to do it. And we still get it wrong. And there are still wars and rumors of wars. And if you ask almost anyone around the world if that's the way it ought to be, they say, no, we ought to be able to do this relationships thing. And we can't. And so this too is a puzzle, a haunting echo of a voice. And then the fourth one is beauty. I'm gonna read you just a little bit and uh, uh, give you the parable that I use at the beginning of the chapter on beauty. One day, rummaging through a dusty old attic in a small Austrian town, a collector comes across a faded manuscript containing many pages of music written for the piano. He phones a dealer. The dealer phones a friend who appears half an hour later. Puzzled, excited. This looks like the handwriting of Mozart himself. But it isn't a well-known piece. In fact, he's never heard it before. More phone calls, more consultations. Really does seem to be Mozart. And when we play it through, it's wonderful, but it seems incomplete. I'm now pressing the next two paragraphs. There are gaps. And just where it ought to be coming to a climax, it seems to stop and then pick up again later. And gradually the truth dawns on the excited little group. What they are looking at is indeed by Mozart. It is indeed beautiful, but it's the piano part of a piece that involves another instrument, or perhaps other instruments. By itself, it is frustratingly incomplete. It is a signpost to something that once was there and might still turn up one day. In case anyone should wonder, and I say this in the book, I wrote those paragraphs just a few months before an enterprising librarian in Philadelphia came upon a Beethoven manuscript, which turned out to be the composer's own transcription for two pianos of the Grosser Fugue from one of his final quartets, life and art imitating one another in a rather a curious way. But my point is this, that's the position that we're in when we're confronted by beauty. When you stand before a great painting, I went to the Met today and thought about this, when you stand before the most amazing sunset, when you see the beauty of a human face, whether it's a little baby or a lovely, wise old person, there is a haunting quality to it, as though it's not just complete in itself, it's a signpost to a larger truth, which is just round the corner, just out of sight. We can't grip it, get our hands on it. It's as though we're hearing the echo of a voice, and we'd love to hear whose that voice is and what story it's telling. So, I mean... You, you can do, no doubt, you can run other echoes of other voices, but these are the four that I chose as ways in. Because, you see, I don't think you can prove the existence of God. That is to say, I don't think you can set up a framework, call it post-enlightenment rationality or something like that, and say, right, we will run the God experiment through this framework that we have set up. And if God happens to pass the test, then we'll put a tick in the box and say, right, we've proved the existence of God. What you've done is you've divinized your framework of thought. And any any being that actually fitted into that framework would not be God. Because if there is such a thing, such a being as God, God is the God who is superior to all our frameworks of thought. In other words, it doesn't work that way. But what I think we have is not proofs in that kind of mathematical, rationalistic sense, but signposts within our world which at least raise a puzzle, ask a question, force us to confront issues which in our busy lives, we're all dashing around doing a million things, we we don't always stop and actually take stock of these issues. And so as the center part of this book, it's in three parts as I said, I talk about the Christian story, I call it staring at the sun for precisely this reason, that just as if you stare at the sun it dazzles you and actually you can't quite see the sun because it's too bright, That's what it's like when you start to try to look at God or think about God. If you think you've got him nailed down, you missed the point. At least there was one time, as I say in the book, when they did nail God down according to the Christian story. And that's one of the most shocking and revelatory moments. But God is just out there beyond and above as well as intimately within and present to All that we have and are. Because, you see, if you go out on the street, it would be an interesting experiment if we all tried this tonight. I'm not necessarily going to suggest it, but it could be interesting. And just said to the first passerby, do you believe in God? Now, I don't know what the stats are in America at the moment. In my country, you might get about a 50% yes and a 50% no. But the really interesting question, the the really interesting answer is the person who doesn't give you a yes or no, but who shoots straight back at you and says, which God are you talking about? I I used to be a college chaplain in Oxford for several years when I was teaching New Testament there. And often the uh, undergraduates who would come would say, I would see them all when they first arrived, and some of them are puzzled, never had dealings with an Anglican priest before. And some of them would say, well, you won't be seeing much of me because I don't believe in God. And I would routinely say to them, which God is it you don't believe in? And they would be puzzled by that, and they would stumble out this business about an old man with a beard sitting on a cloud upstairs, looking down and being cross with us, and, and sending some people to heaven and some people to hell and all that. And I would say, well, I don't believe in that God either. And you see this sort of shadow across their face. I had, had heard that there were atheistic chaplains in Oxford. And, 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 and I would say, no, I believe in the God that I see revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. And that I and my brothers and sisters in the church discover is active through this strange force, this strange wind we call the Holy Spirit. So if you want to get to know that God is very different from the one you just described, then maybe I will be seeing a bit more of you after all. Sometimes didn't, sometimes didn't. But you see, there are two extremes, and this is broad-brush theology, but it may help. And I track these throughout the book, so it's worth just spending a moment on them. Two broad themes about how people have understood God. On the one hand, you have the pantheistic business of God and the world being basically the same thing. This is, this is basically grown-up paganism. Paganism, you have the river is a God, and the sky is a God, and the sun's a God, and the trees are God, and marriage is a God, and wars are God. and Everything's a God. Everything's divine, or possibly a goddess. And pantheism puts all of those together and says, let's be a bit more sophisticated about this. There is a divinity in everything. There is divine power in everything and in everyone. So that you have divine power in you. It's rather flattering, actually. And, uh, but uh, bad luck. There's divine power in the tree and in the stone and in the river as well. So it's not such a big deal after all. <laughs> pantheism answers to the suggestion, the supposition, the, the sense that many, many people have. That there is a strangeness, a strange power, call it divinity if you like, within the world and within us as as we are and as it is. That we're not just flatlanders. The trouble with pantheism is there's no answer to the problem of evil. No answer whatever. If you're a pantheist and life gets tough, as people said in the first century, if you don't like it, you're free to leave. Suicide is the, the pantheistic answer to the problem of evil. Not a very happy thought, though it's on the increase today for precisely that reason. But you see, at the other end of the scale, theologically, instead of scrunching God and the world together, the other end of the scale is a kind of a deism or a dualism where God is a long way away and may conceivably have made the world and might just about possibly occasionally intervene in the world, that intervention language of God from outside reaching into the world and then quickly going back to heaven again. But for the the most part, we're by ourselves and we've got to run the world our own way. That dualism, that deism, is how the Western world has been basically structured for the last 200 years. I have a feeling that the United States of America was sort of built on it. It's in Jefferson, it's in the Constitution. It's old English deism from the early 18th century, and the way it comes through, which is why you have this separation of powers, church and state, never the twain shall meet, separation of religion and public life, etc. Which causes all sorts of problems, and you can ask me about that later if you like. But you see, most people have lived in our culture on that latter view, but there are those two basic ways of doing the God and the world question. And neither Judaism nor classic Christianity does it like that. Judaism and classic Christianity have a view of God and the world which is much more interesting and complex, where God and the world, heaven and earth, actually overlap and interlock in interesting ways. And part of the point of the temple in Jerusalem was that it was the actual place on terra firma where heaven and earth overlapped. So when you went to the temple, it wasn't as if you were going into the presence of God. You were going into heaven, into the presence of God himself. That's why the Psalms are what they are in the Hebrew Bible. And this idea of heaven and earth overlapping and interlocking and sometimes being present to one another in ways we didn't expect gives a much richer context and matrix of thought for understanding what Judaism was and is and what Christianity was and is and please God will continue to be than that either-or of either pantheism with its variants, or deism or dualism with its variants. And it's that that I try to explore in this book, because as then in the next chapter I look at the question of Israel, you cannot understand Jesus Christ without understanding the people of Israel and the story of Israel and the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And so in the story of Israel, and I tell that briefly in, in one of the chapters in this middle section of the book, we discover that the story of Israel has a great deal to do with listening to the voice that says, do justice. With discovering the presence of God, which means spirituality. The Psalms are a wonderful resource for spirituality. With getting it together in relationships, which is what a lot of the Jewish Torah is about. How to live together. It's what the book of Proverbs is about. How to live together in a wise human society. And with the beauty which they glimpse, not least again in the temple, The beautiful place in Jerusalem, the joy of the whole earth, and the vision which grows out of that kind of language of the ultimate beauty of a new creation, when God will make all things new and the earth will be fulfilled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. wonderful prophetic image answering to those four great longings those echoes of a voice so when we turn over the page and meet the figure of jesus in the gospels we shouldn't actually be surprised that out of that jewish tradition there there comes someone who is speaking about god finally getting it together with the world the slogan kingdom of god is about that god putting the world to rights taking his power and reigning And Jesus is passionately concerned with justice and spirituality and relationships. And yes, beauty. Consider the lilies of the field. Just think what sort of world you live in. And what that tells you about the sort of God who made this world. But the thing about that putting together of heaven and earth is that there is this thing called the problem of evil. And it's radical. And it's not to be wished away or waved away by saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's only some people who have problems from time to time. Evil runs through each of us and through each human society. And if God and the world are to get it together, and this is endemic in the Jewish tradition itself in the Old Testament, and comes together with a rush in the story of Jesus in the New, then we are bound to find that all sorts of things also come to their head in terms of a conflict between good and evil, in terms of the ultimate clash. And I'm just going to read you a little bit from uh, the, the, the chapter where I discuss how that ultimate clash came about. The meaning of the story is found in every detail in the passion narratives in the Gospels as well as in the broad narrative. The pain and tears of all the years were met together on Calvary. The sorrow of heaven joined with the anguish of earth. The forgiving love stored up in God's future was poured out into the present. The voices that echo in a million human hearts, crying for justice, longing for spirituality, eager for relationship, yearning for beauty, drew themselves together into a final scream of desolation. Nothing in all the history of paganism comes anywhere near this combination of event, intention and meaning. Nothing in Judaism had prepared for it except in puzzling, shadowy prophecy. The death of Jesus of Nazareth as the King of the Jews, the bearer of Israel's destiny, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people of old, is either the most stupid, senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or it is the fulcrum around which world history turns. And Christianity is based on the belief that it was and is the latter. Because the point of the story of Jesus is not that Jesus came to give us some new moral teaching, as though we needed to wise up a bit on our ethics. Well, we no doubt do, but that's not the point of why Jesus came. Nor did he come to give us a good example. People often say, Jesus said this wonderful moral example. It's a fat lot of good to me. You know, as I said before, I'm a pretty hopeless golfer. When I see Tiger Woods hitting a golf ball, it's a fantastic example. It doesn't make me think, oh, good, now I know how to do it. It makes me think, oh, I'll never be able to do it like that. And if I look at the moral example of Jesus, frankly, that's how I feel. Now, Jesus came to bring world history to its climax. One of the reasons that we in the Western world have found it so difficult to grasp that idea is that we have lived out of a controlling narrative which said that um, world history reached its climax when the European philosophers invented this thing called the Enlightenment in the 18th century. And many, many people today live by that story, that world history really got to its Alpha and Omega point. With the Enlightenment. And we just have to live out of that. So of course you can't have two climaxes in world history. So if we're right Christianity must be wrong. So the Enlightenment has reduced Christianity. To a set of moral truths. Or a set of doctrinal truths that you can put a tick by. Or a nice way of being spiritual or going to heaven when you die. That's not the point. The point is that with Jesus of Nazareth. A great door swung open in the cosmos. And we are invited to go through it. And that's why on the third day he rose again from the dead. I and others have written about that elsewhere. Indeed, the longest book that I've written to date is about the resurrection. 750 pages of it. I sent it to my father. I send everything I write to my father. And he finished it, bless him, at a run in about three and a half days. He's an old man. He's retired. He's got nothing else to do but read his son's book all day. Poor chap. Um, And he phoned me up and said, I just finished the book. I said, really? How do you get on? He said, I really started to enjoy it after about page 600. It's one of the nicest... (laughs) One of the nicest compliments I've ever had. Um, but, But the point about the resurrection has been so misunderstood in contemporary culture. Resurrection is not primarily about going to heaven when you die. Oh, of course. Of course, Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Resurrection is about the reaffirmation of the goodness of creation. And it's about the beginning, the launching of God's project of new creation. Beginning with Easter. There's far too much gnostic escapism around in our culture. That was the first of the lectures I was doing at Harvard the other day. We've... And it's soaked into Christianity as well. As though the real point about the religion or faith or Christianity. Was to leave this wretched old world behind and go somewhere else. No the good news is much better than that. The good news is that by dealing with the evil in the world on the cross. Jesus has been able to launch God's project of new creation. And has invited us to be not only its beneficiaries. But also its agents. How can that be? Not by just hoping that if I go out here and start doing it, it'll work. It won't. But rather by invoking the new wind, the new breath, the power of God, freely available through God's Spirit. And so at the end of the section on staring at the sun, I have two chapters actually dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit. Much misunderstood. I'm not going to say more about that now because time is rushing on. But when you start to look at this picture, staring at the sun, what is the Christian story about God? Then the basic thesis of this book is that as you pay attention to the real story, not necessarily the way you heard it in Sunday school or when you were growing up though, if you were in a good Sunday school, maybe you did. But when you pay attention to who Jesus really was and to the purpose of God revealed in those gospel stories, Then those echoes of a voice that we heard before of justice and spirituality and relationships and beauty. You start to realize that you know whose voice it is that we were listening to. Kind of a scary thought. And what are you going to do about it? Well, the third and final part of the book is called Reflecting the Image reflecting the image. And the point is this. Many people think that being Christian makes you sort of subhuman or semi-human or at least less than fully human. You know, guys out there on the street are having a wonderful time enjoying human life to the full and we in the church are a bit sort of cramped and constricted. Well, bad luck if it's like that. Because being a Christian is supposed to make you more truly human, more fully yourself. And that means more fully somebody who is reflecting the image of God. Being human according to Genesis means reflecting the image of God. And what does that mean? It's not just a mirror with God looking down and seeing his own reflection coming back up at him. No doubt it's meant to be that as well. But it's meant to be an angled mirror reflecting God out into the world and, for that matter, reflecting the rest of the world in worship and praise back to the world's creator. You know, I'm, I'm an ancient historian by training and it struck me once going through the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford that all the great statues of Roman emperors and their families that they've got there were not found in Rome. They were found in Turkey and Greece and Syria and Palestine and Egypt and North Africa, all over the place, where The Roman emperors wanted to put an image of themselves into those bits of their empire. To say this is who your boss is. And the point about Genesis 1. Is that the gracious God who is as unlike a Roman emperor as you could wish him to be. Has put into his world an image of himself. Called men and women made in his image. To show his world what he is like. And tragically we humans. Decided we would prefer to turn it around and reflect the world back to itself and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, as St. Paul puts it, with all sorts of disastrous image-breaking consequences. But the point is that once we listen to those echoes of a voice, and once we are renewed and refreshed in listening to the story of Jesus, then we begin to be able to reflect the image. And so it starts with worship. It must start with worship. For many Christians, being a Christian is something they've done with their heads, something they've figured out with their moral lives, something they've started to get in touch with with friends and so on. Oh, and then they go to church on Sunday and sing a few hymns. That's not actually how it's meant to be. Being a Christian is about gazing at the God in whose image you are made and in love, reflecting that image out into the world. And that means worship because one of the basic laws of spirituality is that you become like what you worship. So that if you worship the God in whose image you are made, you will start to reflect that God into the world. So worship is absolutely central. And for many Christians that's a puzzle because they're bored with church or it's not their culture, it's not their scene, not their style. And and that's a problem we all live with in today's pluriform culture and I fully accept that. But in the middle of worship there grows prayer. And again with prayer you can track the different ways that people think about prayer. There is option one, the pantheist sort of prayer. Where if God and the world are basically the same thing, then praying is just getting in touch with the divinity that's all around us. Well, no doubt it's better to be in touch with divine forces than to forget that they're there or try and screen them out. But that's not Christian or Jewish prayer. And then a lot of people who live in the dualistic world, prayer is shouting across a void to a distant God who might or might not be listening. It's like the the traditional mariner lost on a desert island putting a message in a bottle and flinging it into the water in the hopes that somebody somewhere might eventually read it. For a lot of people, that's what prayer is like. But it's not actually what Christian prayer is supposed to be like. Christian prayer, and if you read John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then 17, you'll see a wonderful model of it. Christian prayer is supposed to be simultaneously intimate and awesome. It's an odd combination to us, but actually it's how it is. There's an awe in the presence of one's creator, but there is also an intimacy because the creator invites us to call him father. And living with that extraordinary business of awe and intimacy and discovering as we open ourselves in prayer that this means coming closer to jesus and getting to know jesus better but the danger with that is that the closer you get to jesus the closer you get to the cross and you find that the pains of the world as well as the joys of the world will stretch you and pull you till it feels as though you're being pulled apart and saint paul says that's precisely the point being conformed to the image of god's son so that when the Holy Spirit is at work in somebody's heart and they are praying in that fully Christian way, part of the Christian calling is to be a person and a community where the pain of the world and the pain of God can get it together. Read Romans 8, it's all in there. So prayer is the most extraordinary calling and it echoes and models that business that God and the world are not the same thing and they're not far apart but they overlap and interlock and we're called to be people who live at that point which can be very painful but also very joyful and then in the middle of it all and I've got a couple of chapters on this as well we find the Bible of course I've been quoting the Bible referring to it quite a lot already And many Christians, again, not least in your culture, have a real, real problem with the Bible. You may have been beaten over your head with the Bible as a kid. I know a lot of people in America in the Biblical Studies Guild who the reason they're in Bible Biblical Studies is because they grew up with the Bible morning, noon, and night. They couldn't get it out of their systems, but then when they went off to college and studied it, they discovered it was actually a human artifact written by ordinary people like themselves, and maybe it's full of puzzles and oddities and even contradictions. And so one lot of people think that the Bible is simply a human artifact which has grown up from within the community, and if there's any divinity in it, it's on that pantheistic model. While still a lot of other people sometimes labelled fundamentalists, we don't have that same phenomenon in Britain as you have here, so I wouldn't presume to, to pontificate about it, but um, uh, often think of the Bible as this book which has come from this distant God and which has just floated down to us. I once heard Michael Ramsay, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, doing a lecture on this, and he said, there are these people who think that the Bible came down from heaven in black leather binding, com- complete with maps. And, and, you see, that's the dualist view. But the Bible is much richer than that. Yes, it is a human artifact, but yes, it is one of those places where the divine and the human overlap. I mentioned my father before, and when I sent him this book, um, bless him, uh, next time I saw him, he said, the book always falls apart at page 148. That's where it is in the British edition. I said, why is that? He said, everyone who comes to the house, I'm reading them. This opening paragraph of this chapter, it goes like this. It's a big book full of big stories with big characters. They have big ideas, not least about themselves, and they make big mistakes. It's about god and greed and grace about life and lust laughter and loneliness it's about birth beginnings and betrayal about siblings squabbles and sex about power and prayer and prison and passion and that's only genesis (laughs) we have forgotten Just how amazing the Bible is. You know, sometimes I'm in morning prayer with my chaplain, the two of us saying morning prayer together. We read the stuff from the lectionary, maybe 15 or 20 verses. And we just pause and we reflect. And sometimes after the service I say, you know, if that stuff had been lost and somebody had dug it up in the sands of Egypt, whether it's Isaiah or Kings or Zechariah or whether it's Luke or Revelation or whatever, if somebody had dug it up in our own day... And published it in some archaeological magazine. The world would just be ecstatic. And would say this is amazing poetry. This is the most astonishingly powerful stuff. That we've ever seen. It really is. And yet we Christians. We take the Bible off the shelf. We read the next bit. Oh yeah we vaguely remember that. And put it back again. And we forget what a treasure we're sitting on. And we really need to re-inhabit. The whole story of the Bible. The whole thing. It's more than worth it. It's absolutely life-giving. There's all sorts of things I could say about that. My time is nearly done. I then have a chapter on the church. The word church is such a turn-off to so many people, and yet the word church, for many people in today's word world, is the absolute lifeline. One of the things we bishops do is we go around doing confirmations. I was in um, Gateshead, which is a, a town on the, on, in Tyneside, just the other side of the river from Newcastle, um, a few months ago doing a confirmation, and there was uh, a string of young adults came forward for confirmation, and the rector was interviewing them as about why they'd come into church and what it meant to them now and one young woman um, was was very nervous about saying she hadn't prepared what she was going to say and the rector finally said just tell us what it's like now that you are where you are and who you are and she looked around at the church and she said it's like having a great big second family and then she said am i supposed to say that and i said yes you are Because nobody had taught her a doctrine of ecclesiology. She had found the reality of having brothers and sisters who cared for her, who were there for her and with her, who were supporting her in good times and bad. And I thank God for that. An ordinary parish in an ordinary, not very well off place. Being, church, that's what church is supposed to be like. Anyway, there's much more I could say about that. The final chapter is about new creation starting now. The point of new creation is this. see. Being a Christian isn't about just stumbling our way through the world the way it is. Maybe making a bit of a difference here or there. But eventually having this spiritual destination called heaven where we go to when we die. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Heaven is important but it's not the end of the world. In the Bible we are promised new heavens and new earth. And those go together. In Revelation, the last scene of the Bible, it isn't that we are snatched up from earth to heaven. It is that the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth. The ultimate denial of all Gnosticism. It is God's intention to renew this sad old earth. God's not finished with it. And what began in Jesus' resurrection on the third day will be complete when earth and heaven are one and when in that wonderful prophetic vision from Isaiah 11, the wolf and the lamb will lie down together and little child will lead them and the earth shall be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And that's the vision that the New Testament picks up on as well, even though much of modern Western Christianity has screened that stuff out because it didn't know what to do with it. It's there and it matters. And the point is this. That's the context in which we do Christian ethics. Christian ethics is not a bunch of funny old rules that somebody dreamt out, uh, a kind of a set of cate- you know, Kantian cate- categorical imperatives hanging in the sky, threatening us. Nor is Christian ethics simply a matter of getting in touch with our deepest feelings, and so that will be authentic, won't it? Welcome to the brave world of existentialism and romanticism. And, but most people, again, you see option one brings you with pantheism into existentialism, just getting in touch with who I really am and being like that. It's not Christian ethics. Option two, the dualist thinks you've got all these rules and God's going to cross with you if you break them. That's not Christian ethics. Christian ethics is saying, we live in God's good creation, but that creation is spoiled by the radical evil which has infected it. However, God in Jesus Christ has dealt and is dealing with, The radical infection of rebellion and evil. Call it sin if you like as long as you remember that that doesn't mean the arbitrary breaking of arbitrary commands. And God is therefore launching his new creation. Starting with you and me. But not stopping there. Because if we are to be angled mirrors reflecting the image of God out into the world we are called to be agents of new creation. And that means serious Christian work for ecology, serious Christian work on reducing and hopefully abolishing global debt, serious Christian work to turn the um, chemical and scientific community around to say, those people who have AIDS need these medications and they need them now, whatever it's gonna mean economically. Serious Christian work at so many different levels, locally on your street and mine, globally through your politicians, and mine. And when we are doing that kind of work, my friends, we are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's one day going to drop off a cliff. We are anticipating in the present the new creation which will be complete in the future. We are not building the kingdom of God by our own efforts. Don't get me wrong. That's the old social gospel. Oh, we just have to do this stuff and eventually we'll build the kingdom. No, the kingdom of God will remain a fresh gift of God's good grace. But what we can do is build signposts for the kingdom. And when the kingdom comes, those signposts will be seen to have really partaken in the reality towards which they point. It's as though, the image I've used, and I'll I'll end with this, the image that I've often used is it's as though I'm a a stonemason working on a great huge cathedral. And the architect has got these wonderful plans, and I'm not even into that stuff. I don't really know what this thing's going to look like. I've just been given this one stone, and I've been told I've got to carve this bit of a pattern on it. And I don't even know what the next bit of the pattern's going to look like. My task is to be obedient to carving this bit, and it's up to the architect where he chooses to put that into the building. This is what I mean when I say we are called to be people of new creation. Not only its beneficiaries, as though salvation was all about me, but its agents. Because salvation is God's gift, not just to the church, but through the church. And so let let me just read you in closing the last paragraph of the book. Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationships, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of the present world. It's time in the power of the Spirit to take up our proper role, our fully human role as agents, heralds and stewards of the new day that is dawning. That. Quite simply is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us.
2: Thank you very much.
0: If you have a question, leap uh, to a microphone, run um Please keep your questions extremely brief. I'm looking for uh, 17 to 20 syllables. (laughs) And we count, we have staff that counts and they're gonna cut you off at 21. So, but please uh, make your way to the microphone uh, if you have a question, Uh, surely you have a question. Um, And I will, um, somebody always does. Somebody always does, that's right. There we are. And if you form an orderly
1: line, if you need to. (laughs) A queue, yes, absolutely. We're awfully good at queuing we brits. Yes, please.
2: Um, hi, Dr. Wright. Um, I, um, we, we started using your book on Romans in our Bible study in our home group.
1: Which one, the big one or the little one?
2: Um, Paul for everyone.
1: Oh, okay, right. The yeah, one.
2: love yeah. it. Mm. Um, but what I have to ask you about this revolutionary concept of your, you know, Christian worldview, I agree with it wholeheartedly. I think that as Christians, we need to be salt and light in this world in a You know, a a tangible way that affects policy and purpose and reaching out in Africa or, you know, Mm -hmm. all these different policies. But my one question is how do you see that happening because it seems somewhat utopian from the outset. Mm -hmm. How do you see that, you know, I think when you're talking about the prayers of Christ, Mm -hmm. he's speaking mostly about unity. Mm -hmm. How do you see all the different denominations coming Mm -hmm. to this Mm utopian worldview, how do you see that happening?
1: Yeah. There's, there's two different questions inside there, one about is it utopian or what, and one about church unity, but they obviously do belong closely together. Um, it may seem utopian, especially to those of us who've lived in churches that haven't even grasped the vision, let alone have seen it happening, but actually within my lifetime there have been two extraordinary examples where the church has actually made a huge and radical difference. The first one is obviously South Africa. Who would have thought, some of you are old enough to remember, how things were in the mid 70s. Maggie and I went South Africa in 75. You'd never have dreamt that 20 years later you would have a black archbishop um, chairing a commission for truth and reconciliation, hearing the tragic stories and having a whole community seeking reconciliation and forgiveness. That was just quite extraordinary. And if you want to know how it happened, you have to say God did it, and God did it through the faithful witness, the faithful and very dangerous witness of the church. The other example, of course, is that when they elected a Polish pope in the late 70s, um, nobody quite realized that within two or three years that would have given the Polish people courage to raise the solidarity flag, which was the crack in the dike of Eastern European communism, which then, within the next decade, completely finished the whole thing off. You know, people have credited other people particularly in this country with the finishing off of Eastern European communism but actually I think it started right there when they elected JP2 and you know yes life is more complicated than that but there is power in the old gospel yet and that was what was being lived out but so you can see that at the macro level but I want to tell you I have seen and I've been proud to see because it wasn't my initiative on the streets of my own diocese in some of the poorest parts and I, I live in a very poor diocese by Large, to see the church getting to grips with what's going on on the street there's one wonderful project in South Shields um, major unemployment in the area, half the shops had shut so the bank had shut because it wasn't getting enough business and the church, an ordinary little church, got together with the other churches church unity, so there's Anglicans with Romans, with Methodists, with one or two others and they took over that old bank and they run it as a literacy training place, as a credit union, as a mothers and toddlers, as a, a daycare centre for old people and it, it, it is enough to make you... Weep with joy. You come out of the church after the Eucharist and you just see the gospel happening, transforming people's lives on the street. It can happen. Of course there are huge problems um, because it is only ever fitful and partial, just like our own obedience is only ever fitful and partial. But it can happen and it does transform people's lives, not just short term. It can actually make a lasting difference to that whole community. So it does happen. And the, the thing about church unity is If we could say to ourselves across the denominations, this is the stuff we ought to be doing, we'd find we could agree about an awful lot of that and we could be solving some of the theological problems as we'd rolling up our sleeves and and painting people's walls or or, uh, sorting out old people's homes or whatever it was. I've seen that happen. Yes, next question. Uh,
3: Yes, Um, you started off by uh, referring to uh, the children of Israel and the uh, GPS satellite navigation system, and I thought that was a... Remarkable um, Metaxian um, coincidence <laughs> um, because um, I'm Jewish and I've been writing about GPS for the last seven years.
1: <laughs>
3: and um, I think there's a s- symbolism there because the GPS system was invented by the Pentagon and uh, it was also, and today uh, we see in Europe a um, Galileo system, which is basically the product, I believe. Largely of envy, on the part of the Europeans, they have satellite navigation envy, <laughs> and um, I, I think this is a this is a, a a symptom of what a profound divorce that's happening between America and Europe, huh. and uh, I think um, I just. Was wondering if you had anything to say about that because you have mentioned the divorce, some on of the, the d-
1: divorce between America and Europe.
3: Yes, the yeah. divorce, mm. the, the 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 incredible hostility that we see um, mm-hmm. developing. Uh, Particularly, you know, from our side, we see it. And I'm sure that uh, on your side you see it differently. But uh, mm-hmm. just be interested to well, see if that, you have anything to say about that. I
1: can't speak for the rest of Europe. And uh, actually <laughs> the, 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 the European Union is a very, very diverse place. And you'd get different answers if you went to Berlin, to, if you went to Paris, to if you went to Madrid. Um, in England, we cherish our friendship with America, and I think there are a great many of us who love coming here, half of our best friends are American, are we allowed to use that old gag? Um, and th- there is a huge amount of respect and affection and admiration for your energy and all the rest of it, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with all the policies of every single government that you've ever had. Just as in the same way, um, even when I, I, I taught at the Hebrew University once, and uh, i lot of Jewish friends, I've worked in Jerusalem, I've lived there, that doesn't mean I am signed up to approving of all the policies of all the different Jewish governments and all the things they do. And if I disapprove, that doesn't make me anti-Jewish, just as if I disapprove of what any one president, let's not name any names at the moment, does, that doesn't make me, doesn't make me anti-American. The trouble is that sometimes some presidents, some congresses and senates have pursued policies which English people simply can't see the reason for. And studying the divergences in the two cultures enables us to understand why it is that some Americans are driven by controlling narratives, which we in Europe simply don't have. Robert Jewett wrote about this, the myth of the American superhero. We just don't have that particular myth. Um, We look at it and we... See, that's how people work. So when people then act out what to them is a, a, a normal controlling narrative, it seems very strange to us, and so on. So there are all sorts of things going on there. Yeah, thank you.
3: I think it was just this past Sunday that uh, the New York Times reviewed Richard Dawkins' new book, ah, yeah. The God Delusion. And What did they, um, what did they say about it? Um, I, th- I just skimmed it, but I think they uh, thought it was a bit uh, excessive, <laughs> which <laughs> yes. is probably not the first time he's been found yes. excessive. Yes. Uh, but uh, in, in a broader sense, I was wondering if you might have any rejoinder or any resources to suggest to deal with that whole question, that whole point of view that says it's all in the mind – Human beings are programmed to look for patterns, Mm. to look for purpose, Mm. uh, to invent it when it's not there. Mysticism is just synapses firing and uh, certain parts of your brain uh, Mm. acting up. Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, I I haven't finished reading Dawkins' book. I've brought it on this trip with me, and I'm about halfway through. Um, Having now read On the Road two recent reviews of it that have been published in England, one by Terry Eagleton, who's an old um, Marxist historian from way back when, Uh, he doesn't mince his words. He absolutely rubbishes Dawkins. It's in the London Review of Books, and it's available on the Fulcrum website, www.fulcrum-anglican.com or something like that. Anyway, Eagleton, it's a a remarkable review, and also one by my friend and colleague David Atkinson, the Bishop of Thetford, who's a a scientist-turned-theologian, and uh, he's much more cautious in what he says, but basically points out the weaknesses in what Dawkins... Dawkins picks the wrong people to argue against. He picks the ultra-creationists, he picks the fundamentalists, and among the theologians, he picks the ones who um, are are actually the easiest targets for him. He doesn't do uh, any interaction with people like John Polkinghorne, with um, uh, Arthur Peacock. Indeed, he quotes them and says, um, these people are routinely held up as scientists who are also Christians. Well, I've been to conferences with those guys, and I've listened to them carefully, and frankly, I don't know what they're talking about. And that's the end of, you know, it, well, excuse me, are we going to have any engagement with this? So. Um, I I am not a scientist. I make no pretense at that. I never studied science at school even, um, except in the most rudimentary fashion. So I've never got into that. But I was disappointed by Dawkins' book because it says, here is a challenge for all those who think they're thinking Christians. They've got to get to grips with this book. And I'm halfway through and there's nothing to get your teeth into yet. It's all polemic. It's all rant. Um, There are, of course, wise people out there writing more serious books like that. But um, interestingly, the old debate comes back to where C.S. Lewis left it 50 years ago when he was meeting the same sort of stuff, that if you say that it's all actually just that we're programmed to come up with these ideas, then the idea that we're programmed to come up with is, is itself a product of that blind chance system. That doesn't actually get you very far, but it merely points back at the person who's saying it and says, so why are we even bothering to listen to you? Why don't we all just hang out and do what comes naturally? And actually nobody really wants to listen like, to, to, to live like that. And in the middle of it, there are these four echoes of voices which most human beings hear, which I don't think you can so easily reduce in that way. But that's my own opinion, of course. Yeah. Okay. We're doing all right. There's another five people there. We've got a quarter of an hour, so three minutes each. Six people there. Okay. You talked a lot about relationships, sir, um, with the Jewish people and to God, etc. Where do the Palestinians fit into your equation? Great question. Um, Very closely, I happen to believe, and as I say, I've lived there and I have friends on both sides of the green line, and I keep up as best I can with what's going on there. Um, At the moment in America there is this massive move of some on the religious right to say that ethnic and geographical Israel is the fulfillment of prophecies in Zechariah and Daniel and Ezekiel and so on. I remember being fascinated by that view when I was a graduate student 30 plus years ago And eventually, after studying the New Testament, expecting to find confirmation of that view, my study of the New Testament led me to think that that was not, in fact, the right way to go. Because in the New Testament, and Romans 8, again, is the classic example of this, the whole world is now God's holy land. There is something about the transition through Jesus, and I know there's controversial and indeed polemical in some quarters, which says that the Holy Land was an advance metaphor for God's claim on the whole creation and that that's where we're now going to. And within that, Paul then immediately turns around in Romans 9 and says, where does that leave us with the Jewish people? And he wrestles with that question and I've followed that wrestling and tried to be obedient to it. But when we then have a claim that the land inalienably still belongs to the ethnically Jewish people, and that therefore they have some kind of inalienable right to do whatever is going to suit them vis-a-vis the Palestinians, I say purely in terms of that echo of the voice saying, do justice, we cannot stand by and say that that's okay. And interestingly, the Palestinian liberation theologian, Naim Atik, wrote a book um, nearly 20 years ago now called Justice and Only Justice, which is a quote from Deuteronomy and uh, one of the rabbis expounding that line, which says justice and only justice shall you seek, says, why does God say the word justice twice? And this rabbi says, because there must be justice for Israel and for her neighbors. And that's Naim's point that yes, there must be justice for Israel, there must be a safe place, the Jewish people must be secure. We have learned that lesson to the nth degree, I hope and pray, but that justice must never be at the expense of doing violent and horrible injustice to their neighbors all around. It's not as easy as that. It's a short answer to a long and complicated question, but that's where I would start. Thank you. Next question.
0: Dr. Wright, you uh, you always seem to make very compelling arguments. I'd, I'd uh, In defending the gospel, I'd love to know what the most difficult argument you've faced from a critic that's an unbeliever, whether it be historical, philosophical, uh, scientific, whatever it might be. What's the, what's the hardest argument you've had to struggle with?
1: It's hard to pick because they're always coming. Um, but uh, I think there are dimensions to the problem of evil which go so deep that they challenge me to say... Did Jesus really deal with that on the cross? I've got a friend who who is a scientist who writes about the Darwin Wars, the kind of intra-Darwinism infighting that's going on. And he says that the thing that he finds hardest is that when he looks at the created order it turns out that some remarkably high proportion of creatures that exist on the planet are parasites that live inside other creatures and are sort of eating away at them from the inside. He said, if a good God made the world, can't see how he would have done it like that. Now, I have not studied that stuff, but it seems to me there are problems of that sort which do need to be wrestled with. And you might say, if you like, that that is the result of the fall. Um, that's actually explaining one unknown by another comparative unknown that we, we can't actually solve the problem of evil in the sense that if you find that you've produced an argument which says, ah, there we are, we've understood why evil exists, so that's all right, we can go home and relax, then you have not taken it seriously enough. Because evil is absurd, it is a nasty, dark force that goes, as I said, down within each of us and cuts through each human society. And if you think you've escaped, or your society has escaped, or your family has escaped, then you really are living in cloud cuckoo land. So arguments about the problem of evil are always going to be tough, and the Christian answer has always been and must always be to come back to the foot of the cross. And think about the way the gospel story is told, so as to draw all the forces of evil together onto Christ on the cross, but so so that's that's always going to be the toughest. Yes yeah.
0: Thank you very much, Bishop Wright. Uh, I agree with you that as agents of the kingdom, we should be signposting, as it were. It seems to me those signposts ought to be accurate. You said something about uh, the u s being formed. Uh, around this enlightenment idea my question is this perhaps a variation of the first question posed to you how do we as christians put our finger along the seam between ideologies of the world and uh... this clear biblical narrative that should be animating our signposting it seems to me it's not just as simple as go read the bible uh, could you speak to that? How do we put our finger along the seam and make sure we're not mm. conflating ideas, mm. being, uh, being on the right side of that? Mm.
1: Yeah, I love the idea, that, that idea of the finger on the seam. The problem is the seam, she, seam seems to be shifting all the time in that we live in a very confusing culture, as I said. I've just been lecturing this last week in Harvard on, on, on the interplay between gnosis, empire, and postmodernity in our culture each of which impinges on the other and each of which can be addressed from within the Christian gospel. But most people in our culture don't actually articulate the problem in that way at all and so are moving around, I think, half in the dark, certainly in, in, in my country, without realizing where the large narratives are that are driving them. And so then the problem comes where... Uh, If they try to address the world with the Christian gospel, they're addressing only little bits of the world, and no doubt I'm guilty of that as well. Um, But then it becomes less cultural and more purely personal, and the trouble is there is no such thing as a person outside a culture. We all live with cultural imperatives resonating through our skulls all the time, and those are the things that need addressing with the gospel. Those are the things that need converting. So that, it is is a very, very difficult task, and it takes the constant vigilance. This is why it's got to be a whole church thing. Can't be one person doing it. You know, some of us are called to be um, cultural critics as well as biblical scholars, but most people haven't got the time to do that, and yet here you are in one of the most vibrant cultural cities that the world has ever known. There must be quite a few people in this room who actually do have their finger much more than I do on what's going on in theatre, in cinema, in art, in music, and in all sorts of ways, both high culture and low culture. And please reflect on that. Reflect Christianly on it. Ask yourself the key questions. And the thing is, don't be dualistic about it. Paul says in Philippians 4, whatever is true lovely, honourable, good report, if there's any virtue and any praise, think about these things. And there's lots of that stuff out there, irrespective of whether the artist in question is a Christian or not, or the musician in question. And we can celebrate, just as with the Enlightenment, I celebrate a great deal that was good about the Enlightenment. I'm sometimes seen as being anti-enlightenment I'm not. And the Enlightenment brought great blessings as well as great problems. And that post-modernity is a necessary answer to the Enlightenment, but it too leaves us deeply unsatisfied. The Christian task is always to go through and out the other side, to take the best that there has been, to thank God for it and celebrate it and build on it, but to do so constantly looking, constantly vigilant. There is no one answer that I can give you which we can then all put in our pockets and think, well, that's got that one sussed for the next generation. But it's a wonderfully exciting task, and I, I commend it to you. Thank you. Thank you. We
0: can only do the last three if we're very quick. Yeah. Okay. So, Sorry. Uh, and I shall try no, and do no, quick, no. too. Uh, yeah.
1: I think this is a simple question. Is Do you believe that the apocrypha have a use The apocrypha certainly have a use. Um, At the very lowest, um, this is the stuff that's sometimes printed between Old and New Testaments, um, the books of the Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, etc. They shed a flood of light on what it meant to be a first century Jew. Um, And the more I read that stuff, the more I think, yeah, we're really in touch with what it was like for those people. And some of those books in particular, like the Wisdom of Solomon, give us direct access to how people were thinking about the concept of wisdom, the concept of life and death, the concept of empire, in a way which then opens up like a flower when it comes through into the New Testament. Paul looks as if he knew... Um, the wisdom of Solomon and is at least in dialogue with it and at least engaging with it. So, yes, the apocrypha is enormously important. Most Christians don't study first century Judaism nearly enough. Get hold of the penguin classic of Josephus. Get hold of uh, an, an, an English edition of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Just read that stuff because you will then be able to avoid the massive anachronisms into which we otherwise routinely fall. Is this a supplementary? And the Gospel of Thomas that just came out? Oh, the, the Gospel. And, and those sort of That's New books. Testament Apocrypha. That's a very different thing. Yes, that was actually my question. The, ah, I'm sorry. I was thought you meant the Apocrypha as normally described. Okay, uh, he gets two questions at the price of one. Um, <laughs> There are several things which are called Gospels, which didn't make it into the New Testament. And there has been a major fad in New Testament scholarship over the last um, decade or two, especially actually almost uniquely in in America, for saying that these were the really exciting Gospels and they got squelched by the boring Christians who preferred their their solid, staid old uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Um, Let me just say this is enormously important. I happen to have, we're all doing this tonight, I happen to have another little book which is just published, which is called called Judas and the Gospel of Jesus, just published by Baker, and that is a response to the Gospel of Judas, which was just published at Easter. But let me just say this as a taster. In the second century, the people who are being thrown to the lions and sawn in, sawn in two and burnt at the stake were not reading Thomas and Judas and Philip and Peter and, Mary, and Gospel of Mary and They were reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Because those are the books which say Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Whereas Thomas and Co are agnostic, dualist, escapists. And they have a Jesus who is all about escaping this world. And so why would it matter that God's kingdom should come and his will be done on earth as in heaven? So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm afraid, that are the really radical ones, not those flaky Gnostic stuff. Yes, next question. <laughs>